Welcome to Social Sessions. I'm joined today with one of the most interesting characters I've ever had the pleasure of knowing. From conflicts with the law to becoming one of Scotland's leading speakers on the effects of trauma. With his innovative approach to addiction, mental health and being an integral part of the public health message in reducing violence in Scotland. James has worked with some of the world's leading experts and it is just an honour to call James a friend. How are you? Good buddy, you? All good mate. All good. better for seeing you. Good man. So basically we're here to talk about kind of trauma, mental health, addiction. <clears throat> um, there's an epidemic at the moment in Scotland, we can see that. What, what do you think is happening, James? Well, it's multifaceted, so you need to look at, obviously, the social and um, social and economic inequalities and poverty being one of the main drivers, but mainly it's the inequality that it causes. So even if you look at, if you look at addiction, exa for example, right. then then it's easy to understand why is it most people who are dying with addictions come from the most socially, economically deprived areas in the country because that's where the most stress is. And yeah. where the most stress is is where human beings will have a need to seek relief Aye. for the, the strain of that, basically. So even if you look at it through uh, strain theory, strain theory talks about having an overdose of uh, stress in your life Aye. And and basically that ups your vulnerability to things like alcoholism, addiction, and obviously some of the um, health inequalities you see in the most socially deprived areas. So probably the best way to explain it, Sean, is simply is it's today with stress. The more stressed a community is, the more need for relief for that is. Aye. And that shows up in substances. And the tragedy with some of these substances is they're highly addictive, so they'll suck you into addiction. Aye. And it brings its own problems as, as well. So but, do you think that's where, like, obviously people talk about dual diagnosis and you've got mental health and addiction running kind of intrinsically. I don't really think, look, me looking in for, for my workplace and stuff, I don't really think they've nailed that yet. They've not even, they're starting to look at it, but... What do you think of that? What do you think of that? Can I process the dual diagnosis? Can I? Well, they're all interconnected. So you'll very rarely have one diagnosis running on its own. So they'll usually uh, play into other disorders. Right. So if you've got, um, for me, it's all underpinned by trauma. So it's unresolved trauma and it'll show up as mental health. It'll show up as maybe personality disorders. It'll show up as addiction. It'll show up as even heart disease, that's a massive thing that's misunderstood about health, uh, social inequality, is that your risk for ischemic heart disease is greater if you've had a really stressful childhood as it is for all the other risk factors like smoking, drinking, um, drugs. And that that is still massively misunderstood that people don't realise that if you've had a highly stressed childhood uh, ups your risk exponentially Aye. greater than it does smoking, drinking and eating unhealthy foods. Aye. I, was watching, I seen Russell Brand actually on a podcast the other day and he was talking about sugar mm -hmm. and he was talking about how addictive sugar is just yeah. because we're not actually supposed to have that. There'll be like in a natural kind of hunter-gatherer kind of sense. 
and even just to like phones and stuff like that nowadays it's the way like you're flicking through phones and stuff yeah. like that um do you think like obviously gabber matty kind of talks about it in the in the realm of hunger ghost he kind of talks about everybody's got an addiction do you think that's like like obviously there's there's different ways and it, it could be addiction to kind of eating like and there's all sorts of addictions do you think that that's kind of goes with the socially deprived areas as well or absolutely think about this sean where's most of the fast food restaurants Aye. where's most of the um cheap foods sold Aye. in the middle of deprived areas they're known bears then where's most of the bookies Aye. they're in the most socially deprived areas because that's where the most stress is and the need for relief for that stress might be gambling eating fast food sugar and do you think these big companies do you think these big companies know about that think they, 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 they oh aye of course they know but do they care so how do we how would how, how would we even go run about starting to get how, how would we get politicians involved and in even looking into that I think the politicians already know Sean, it's whether they do something about it or no. And it's that thing where um, capitalism makes the world go round. If you look at the pandemic, when the pandemic happened, public health in Scotland got a flame out its arse to do something about it. So in a very short period of time, me and you knew how to take make certain behavioural adjustments that enabled us to protect our neighbours and enabled us to protect ourselves. Enabled us to protect family members who had vulnerabilities to that virus. Whereas a couple of weeks or three weeks prior to that, I had no awareness of what a virus was. I got basically educated, on, psycho-educated through social media on this stuff. Mm. So I was able to make certain adjustments that could protect other people. Aye. And the reason that happened is because the virus threatened the economy. That's why they've done something about it. Whereas... This other stuff that you're describing doesn't really threaten the economy, so they don't get as much a drive to address it as they would if it did. I know it, you look at big pharma and stuff like that, and when you start looking at the kind of the the profits just making, it's quite sickening. Um, I don't know if you've seen Dope Sick. I've um, seen some it. It's it's actually quite sickening. Mm -hmm. uh, just right watching it to the end, it was like the the way they brand they branded oxycotton, uh, and it was like this opiate that's um un no addictive, just got no addictive properties. And before you know it, there's an epidemic in America. Yeah. <clears throat> um and then the fine doesn't even match the the profits by any means. Yeah. How 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 does that I mean it's stuff like that, how do we get the power back how do we get the power back to fix things like how do we get the the awareness out to people how i think um obviously um governments are not going to do it because obviously the money that's involved in this and i think the way you found it out you found it out through watching dope sick Aye. Uh, so it's about getting this information out to the general population so that they can invent wise actions because the more you know the better you can do 
and that's been the same in my own life personally the, the more I've known this stuff and understood it the more empowered I've been to apply solutions rather than waiting in the government to pull a lever Aye. a lot of people out there are kind of especially the new with the cost of living a lot of people are struggling um, looks as if drug deaths might go back up again this year yeah. Um, especially with this kind of these kind of new benzodiazepines. If I'm, I don't even think I think they're theodiazepines, but um, it's they caught. I, I see. I can kind of see. I was talking. I was talking a podcast all day, and I, I can kind of see the young team thing kind of creeping back in, and it seems to be like what you were talking about earlier: the rise in poverty. They've no, maybe not got their money for FIFA anymore. The Wi-Fi gets cut off yeah. because of, that's the first thing it's going to cut off rather than feeding people. Mm -hmm. So you're starting to see people coming out back onto the streets, the young team drinking again. Um, so it is, so it's, it's quite an, it's quite a in-your-face sum. Uh, you look at... Yeah. You look at that, but... Um, so addiction, trauma, it's such a glaring, um, obvious kind of... How, how, do we go, how do we go about even starting? How do we... How do we go about, what would you do, James, what would you put in place? Well, I'd have psychoeducational programmes um, in schools and obviously uh, I would let parents, expectant parents know at the first prenatal visit about the dangers of toxic stress. So I would psychoeducate expectant mothers because we date with smoking, for example. You tell a mother about the dangers of smoking about the dangers of drinking alcohol can have on the fetus, but do we tell them about the dangers of toxic stress can have on the brain of a developing child? I don't think we do. Well, I know we don't. We're no. getting better at it. Governments are getting better. Um, Scottish government especially are getting better at getting this information about toxic stress and adverse childhood experiences out to the wider population. But when it gets to the symptomatic level of what you're speaking about, young people leaving the house to navigate the housing scheme. Um, a lot of that's today with the wider social inequalities like poverty. So poverty is an adverse childhood experience. But it, is, it isn't the only adverse childhood experience um, study, the original right. study, because it was done with white middle-class Americans. So if you look at poverty through the lens of why is it an adverse childhood experience? Because it exudes stress on the family system. So if you've got a stressed mother, by definition, you've got a stressed child. So there's been studies done where they've measured the cortisol levels in a stressed mother, and it's shown that the child's stress response gets elevated as well. And a lot of people don't understand that. So if you're a parent who's living under the conditions, no knowing how you're going to feed the wains that week, Aye. how you're going to pay the bills, and you're a wee boy growing up in that, for example, and I know, uh, just use an example as a wee boy, it's children are idealistic by nature, so Aye. they want the best conditions for their mammy, their da. So right. if they're in the community and they're being exposed to, for example, such and such is punting a wee bit of this and right. he's making fast money and that wee guy's thinking, my man da skint, they're living under all sorts of stress. They might not use that language about stress or... Ah, I know, I know what you mean. But they'll sense that, they'll pick up on that and that 
makes you, that's strain theory again, it makes you more vulnerable to the idea of, see that sense of lack? Aye. Creates a vacuum in your life. So the young person might be like, I'm going to sell a wee bit of this, sell a wee bit of that, and I'll put my man's Wi-Fi back on. I'll put, I'll put, I'll get my man your telly. I'll right. get my man your couch. Which is logical. And so, 100%. I mean, it's it's obviously people <clears throat> will, will demonise it and whatever, but this is what this podcast is all about, is to kind of try and educate people on crime and why things happen and stuff. And if you're living in that environment and you've no got Wi-Fi, but your pal's got Wi-Fi, your pal's got Gucci, but you've got... Yeah. You've got whatever can I make. You're going to want the same make as him. Absolutely. This this basically causes like um, perfect grounds, if you like. It creates envy. Aye. So you start comparing yourself to your pals. Aye. So what's it like for the wee boy who's grown up in the housing scheme? His ma's heroin addicted. His dad's half the scene. His ma spends all the money on feeding the addiction. Um, she does her best to meet the needs of the kids. She she feeds them and all that, so they're fed. Uh, but they don't get the Gucci. They don't get the nice trainers. And he's looking at his pals who have got two parents at work. And he's gone to school with that sense of separation, like comparing herself to them. And he gets the opportunity to sell a wee bit of cannabis that will enable him to buy that stuff. That's what leaves you vulnerable to it. But we live in a society that creates the very thing that it punishes people for. Definitely. And I think that you've just described 99% of the jail population. Huh? Um, I remember, I can't remember who came in, but somebody came into the prison when I was there and I was a politician and they were talking and all that and how can we do this and how can... I I think it was the day with the smoking ban. How can we do this and we don't want to leave you back and... um, I, I kind of just said, look, I said, see, see see the whole thing? I says, let's go down the room, right? And just ask everybody where they're free. And he was like, why why do you want to do that? I said, just, just do it. And it was Springburn, Pozo, Mary Hill, Rikese, Cranhill, just all the di- Cabrain, all the different places that are kind of rough in areas. Not one was Bears Den, Mulgai, yeah. Jordan Hill, n- none. I, I, and me personally, I was in prison for 15 years and I can't really remember meeting anybody for that. Yeah, same. My experience, my experience of navigating the prison environment not that long ago, actually, it was a few years ago. I'm in a room, a group of prisoners, and I says to them, put your hand up if uh, you were excluded from school. 95% of the room put their hand up, probably more than that. Right. Uh, I says, put your hand up if you're, you're care experienced. Again, same percentage. And then I says to them, would it be fair to say to you that prison is just another form of social exclusion? That the exclusion started that young? That you got the message that young, that you right. weren't there enough? And then it's just been layer after layer of being excluded for relationships. In fact, I heard a cracker recently, a guy describing homelessness, you know what he said? He says, homelessness isn't really, when you think about it, about just the lack of a home. It's fundamentally about the lack of relationships. It's the loss of relationships. Wow. And when these really, I was like, what an insight. Right. And that's the same as the prisoner who's been socially excluded. They get the message young, 
that they're no wanted. Mm-hmm. And then they go to courts for acting at the behaviours of the pain of that, for example. And then the judges only get the option to put them in that another form of social exclusion. Right. And then within the prison setting, if they're only conforming to the etiquette of the prison, the prison uh, rules, they'll isolate them. Right. Again, within that setting, and the evidence is glaring, saying that um, social isolation is toxic to human beings, but we use it as a social control. And it's a million percent, you're right. It's lazy, Sean. Well, even Lord Turnbull, who I'm not a big fan of, right? I'm not a big fan of any judges, right? But listen, I know it's their job and stuff, but Lord Turnbull wrote a great paper about do not jail under 25s because you're doing more harm yeah. than you're good. And I think they're rolling out a wee bit. I think they are trying. Um, and I think I think that's a good thing. Um, but I remember speaking to a police, a, a police about it. It came into like, uh, my placement when I was in prison into the uh, CYCJ. And um, he was talking about it. And, and he was like, hey, I just got to get these wee wankers uh, pulling. I'm no... I'm no, I'm under 25. I went, listen, you're going to get that. You're going to get people that are going to get, grow up and be wider and faster and use that as an excuse. But see if you can save 10% of that. Yeah. You're still saving 10% of the boys would, you're going to demonize and grow up to be your gangsters, murderers, whatever you want to be, whatever you yeah. want to be. Do you know what I mean? Like whatever you want to call them. Um, your, your future prisoners. So, I just don't know how, uh, how how you would, uh, how would you how would you change that? How would you do to kind of? Well, I would I would um I would put the rehab rehabilitation in its proper context. Aye. So what is it they're actually rehabilitating? Because if Aye. you understand the brain science, and you understand what it takes to resolve trauma, and if you look at the research, then it's telling you that prison is full of people who have got TBIs, who have had traumatic brain injuries. It's full of young people who have got neural disabilities, speech, language, uh, educational attainment has been held back because because of a lot of this stuff. They've got unresolved trauma, which means they might have an overactive stress response. Do they honestly think that putting them in settings where you warehouse them with two or three hundred other people who are navigating orientating the same issues they're um, strategically the best people to place them with to work out what it is they're actually gone through so it would mean a whole redesign of the criminal justice, justice system. system it would be an admission that we're getting it wrong we are punishing traumatised young people and wondering why it isn't getting better and well, if you look at the the Nordic model if you look at what the day in the Scandinavian countries and their prison system. They've got smaller units. They prepare them with life skills. They set them up to be contributing, productive members of society. And in the process of doing that, they work out the trauma because they see prison as an opportunity to resolve the issues that might be underpinning their behaviour. But we're mere behaviour focused. So we just default to that punitive aspect to prison and that's what's wrong it's not just it's not just the prison system Sean we can look at the prison system and say look what they're doing they're getting that wrong what fuels the decision 
makers to pull the levers of policy mm-hmm. and the strategies that enable decisions to be made at that level to send people into these settings. It's the public. You need to change the public's mind because the public are the voters and prison isn't a vote winner. No, you're not going to get any MSPs coming out and going, I'm going to pump all sorts of money into the prisons because you're not going to get voted in. Aye, exactly. So they keep repeating the same mistake because it's mere about um, getting the votes. I mean, you catch a politician, James, you've probably done this, you you catch a politician yourself and he'll tell you, I know we've got it wrong. But I can't, yeah. I, mean, I can't admit it to my yeah. constituents. I couldn't even, I couldn't possibly even start to bring that out. How, how does, how, how does that? I mean, the change is radical, right? We know that. But where do we start? Where does even, where do we start even trying to nurture it? Where do we start? Well, I know it's early, a big question, but I know as early years as a vote winner. It starts with how do you get it right for the parents in order to get it right for their children. So it's about tackling poverty, dosing down the stress in family systems, um, tackling the wider inequalities in the housing schemes that are the most deprived and cut off with things like good youth work, um, good social supports like support groups for women who might be experiencing domestic um, abuse, good support groups for even men who might be experiencing uh, de- depression Aye. and looking at how communities are best placed to do that rather than relying on the age-old authority-based services like so there's a tendency to lean into the police should fix violence in communities social work should sort the stuff out with the veins mm-hmm. whereas they are in the best place to do that they can facilitate it Aye. but most of these issues are worked out by community because the nature of the trauma for example and I know that's one of the themes. The nature of trauma is you lose trust in authority-based systems Definitely. and services. And the reason that happens is not because authority-based systems and services and the people in them are not to be trusted. It's today we, where they experienced the trauma has eroded their ability to trust anybody. Mm-hmm. And usually the only people they trust and they've got any sort of connection with are the people who walk with them and talk with them. And that's why a guy like me and you who come from that environment, who's done the inner work, who's worked out a lot of their issues, who's in a better, a different level of consciousness, right. where they're only relying on that strategic planning that you did when you were navigating the gang, where you could co-sign and justify and rationalise things like violence right. or drug dealing or... Uh, breaking into shops or any of that stuff, you're at a place in your life where you can see the futility in that behaviour and that it doesn't point your life up the way. And they're the people, I think, who are best placed at a community level to lean into the lives of some of these young people and struggling families and orientate them in a different way. No tell them the way they're living is wrong because they already know anyway. They're already navigating their own shame of the... The, the way they're living and plus the abnormals became normal because it's been going on for generationally so they don't really question it it's just that's the way it is we've always done that they don't see it as an issue and I think um, that's why if you embed people and um, professionals with lived experience who are allowed to own that 
their experience of having maybe have navigated these types of environments and overcoming a lot of these adversities, these people are brilliant at winning the trust. Because they can win the trust in the community very, very quick in a short period of time. Aye. Whereas it can take an authority-based service a long, long time to win the trust. Mm. And they might not even win it. No, and that's why I think authority-based services need to have the humility to say, we can't do this bit, we do this bit brilliant, but we can't do that bit. And that's why they rely on a lot of the third sector, because the third sector's made up of people who grew up through poverty. I know CEOs that grew up in poverty and are Aye. running organisations in the third sector. I know CEOs who grew up in the care system, mm -hmm. who are CEOs in services and are really passionate about the work and really effective at doing it because it comes to your son. It's ah, hard best. I know, I know. And I'm not saying that people who haven't got that experience haven't got that. Aye. But what I'm saying is that the people who are living in that experience notice it quicker. They know when somebody's sincere because that's another trauma dynamic as well is trauma survivors are brilliant at reading the room, mate. They Aye. know who gives a... Uh, <clears throat> sorry to the listeners out there, they know who they know who gives a fuck. No, of course. They do, because they've navigated their whole life getting a measure of people for who cares, who doesn't, who's in it for the right reasons, who's in it for a salary, or who's in it for the salary and the passion of doing the work. Aye. I think, looking at... If you go to, like, the prison system, for example... And I hate it. Like, obviously, I know how hard the job is. I'm not trying to play down how hard running the prison system is. We have a kind of limited budget and stuff like that. Um, but this, the, you go to Berlin for for talking sake, and it's a, it's like a staffed jail. It's like you call it a screws jail. You know when you go into it. And I think they're conditioned and they kind of running like a gang. Maybe mm -hmm. not as criminally or violently but there's still that element of if you step out of line you're getting your boss booted here it's coercive aye uh, totally uh, and I, I think you get conditioned in the police I was talking to a police know that a police not that long ago I was trying to go on the show a former Met, Met copper and um, he was basically saying like when he when he the stuff he was seeing it was like traumatising stuff like that and um it was basically like I was the stuff I'd seen in that growing like basically in my job. He went, it was kill like I was going home and I was greeting and all that. He says, yeah. and I went and says I would and mental health or my, my mental health shot to fuck. I need to go and see somebody. And the other officers demonised him. I don't like work with him and yeah. what if he gets an anxiety, what if he gets a panic attack when you've got to do a raid and all that, which you get you can see the logic for their point and all, but it's yeah, yeah, yeah. It's all, the, it's all the same response, James, isn't it? Absolutely. It's human. It's a human condition. So you put a human under any conditions of stress, then it'll take its toll on you. And if you've got a culture where you're... It's a bit like the housing scheme where when you were young, you couldn't really talk about your feelings or show vulnerability because your pals would be like, I'll be right, you. <laughs> you would get totally trampled on. So you learn to hide that vulnerability. So the order of the day is repression, isn't it? Everything's getting repressed. And that happens in the prison system and that will happen in the police setting as well because it's the, it's the human condition. It's basically that thing where 
if you put, if you put, um, I remember when I started uh, volunteering with the violence reduction unit, uh, I was observing the police and I was obviously still working with a lot of my own trauma at the time and making sense of my own experience and VRU were sending me in all different courses like territorial Aye. courses on territorialism and um, I was just getting this new insight and just learning all the time. And I started to realise that that I grew up under certain conditions, so I was in a conditioned response. Aye. So it's that thing where you don't blame a plant no. if it isn't fulfilling potential. You look at the plant and say, it's in the wrong environment, move it to the windy, are you watering it? In fact, surround it with other plants. Apparently they do better if you surround them with other plants. Somebody will say, apparently if you talk nice to it, it will start to they'll, mm. they'll grow. And that's the same with the, the human brain. The human brain develops in response to the environment. So when I was looking at my environment, obviously some of my behaviours um, didn't meet social expectations or behaviour, and obviously the police are tasked because they're, the, they're the social conscience. Aye. It's not okay for you to behave like that, and rightly so, because you're accountable. Aye. You can't go about um, operating uh, the way I did when I was younger. Um, and... You you need a you need that check behavior checked. You need somebody to put put the reins on that. And what I realised was that uh, my response to these abnormal conditions were normal. So it wasn't that there was something wrong with me. It was like I was growing up under abnormal conditions, Aye. and my response to that, a reaction, whatever you want to call it, was normal. Aye. So what's it like when you put a prison officer or a police officer into an environment that you've just described, Aye. then they'll need to come up with adaptations in order to survive that environment. Oh, and some of the adaptations are only the best for your health and well-being, especially if you're suppressing your feelings. And that's why um, there's some research in America showing that the life expectancy of prison officers 10 years below the national average so just, right for now. So just just by signing up to be a prison officer, you've took 10 years off your life because Aye. of the stress of the job. And why would that be? Well, what are you in response to? Aye. You're operating in a, an environment where you're containing mm -hmm. predominantly people who are toxically stressed. Mm -hmm. And obviously you've got to add in your own fears because you've read some of the... Um, Aye, what they're capable of. What they're capable of, what they've been up to. So you'll end up in a response to that to try and manage the risk of that. And if you're living under the conditions all the time, then that affects your way of being in the world. So that's why that research exists that it's 10 years below, takes 10 years off your life because of the stress of the job, why there's high rates of sick leave, why there's high rates of mental health and depression amongst um prison officers and police right. and why um, there's incidences of obviously alcoholism and some of the other stuff that you see out there so it's their human beings as well right. and it's recognising their plight I know. and I think we're probably the best place to speak to that because they need as much compassion as the prisoners do and it's recognising that if we can get it right for them then by natural consequence they'll want to get it right for the prisoners and start to recognise that 
And if you ask like, some of the prison staff who've worked in these settings all their days, Aye. like the old school, if they're really honest, you get them in a one to one, they'll tell you it's no working. Prison's no working. Ah, they, I mean, they, they're, 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 they're just as, as um, wide as us, if not wider, a lot of them. Um, and it's that way they've got to, because they're, they're, they're operating under a punitive system, as you say. They've got drug tests and stuff like that, so drugs and all that are kind of demonised in prison, which, rightly so, you can't have everybody run about it. Not, I know, I understand that. Um, but the conditions are perfect for escapism mm -hmm. in prison. So it's that wee bit of compassion that you need to teach the staff to have, but you also need to teach the prisoners to have uh, this compassion for the staff, well, here's which the is thing, hard. Sean, I think they've already got it. They've just forgot that they've got it. But it's human nature to be compassionate. Agreed. That's how we operate as a society. If we weren't compassionate by nature, we wouldn't be able to function, function as a right. society. If it was dog eat dog and every man out for themselves, then there would be more issues than there is the new. So we mobilise based on compassion because we're a social animal. Aye. It's just that in these settings, because of the amount of stress you're under, it doses down your ability to empathise. I've tried to, expl to explain this. People, when people ask me about prison and stuff like that, I try and say, imagine all the kind of social norms outside. You need to flip it. And you need to see that violence is celebrated in there. Aye. Drug taking celebrated. Anti-authority behaviour celebrated. Um, just that whole, there's a whole poison within that whole system that's yeah. celebrated. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's like I've, I've met some of the best boys I know in a jail, like mm -hmm. some of the, the best boys, and, and some of them are capable of it's, it's violence, do you know what I mean? And some of them are bang at it, and they, but mm -hmm. they're cracking boys. And it's just the whole thing, eh, I don't know how you break that down. How do you break down the big guns then that kind of, that's where I've, I, I, I struggle to see it. How do you break these big, bigger egos, if you like? Well, you stop building prisons as big as they are. Aye, exactly. So you break them down into therapeutic units. So 15 to 20 bed units where you can do the therapeutic work. Aye. Where there's mere relational depth, where there's mere authenticity. Definitely. That can't be facilitated in a prison that's got a thousand beds and operationally their biggest task in a day are to feed them, put clothes in their back, get them to court. So there's no... Two officers at a holy hunter. Aye. So there's no therapeutic inner work. Even the officers are in their amygdala all the time when they're at work because they're having to keep everything checked if they locked that door properly because they know um, the... The prisoners are widows. <laughs> no, of course. And it's like they're, they're up pulling angles all the time and um, it's just the nature of that setting, as you know. Aye. And obviously, if you're no like, if you find yourself in a prison setting and you're no naturally um, like that, then Aye. very quickly you'll need to learn to be like that. You'll need to compromise your integrity a lot of the time just to survive that environment. But it's the environment that's a problem. Aye. It's not the people. I remember I've... I've I'm obviously in the kind of middle of writing a book, right? And I've obviously speak a wee bit about this in my book. And it's like um, the first time I actually seen real violence. Um, now, I'm not saying 
I was, I'd been drunk before when there was gang, staff be gang fights and stuff going on and coming old and stuff and you, people, things happened and, um, but when I actually seen somebody stone cold sober and Pullman getting slashed and I seen the whole <laughs> thing happen, I remember actually like how much it shocked me mm -hmm. and how everybody around about was all laughing and it was a big joke and it was like this guy's face was hanging off yeah. and the staff were no bothered they were like running about trying to get people behind their doors and i just remember going i can't survive 15 years of this man like i remember like yeah. thinking and i i would grow up and come with all that I, I obviously wasn't an angel by any means but i just that stone cold sober ready to kind of yeah ready to rock at any time mm -hmm. the way Poland was was just dead frightening. Yeah. And I remember going, I need to, I need to change here quick. I need to grow up really fast here or I'm going to get eaten alive. Oh. And I was just lucky that my personality got me through and um, I was liked. And then I was, uh, I was lucky I had good pals that knew mm -hmm. people that were able to kind of look out for us. And then I actually remember being in Addywell a couple of years later and somebody getting stabbed and being one of the people that were sitting watching it and no normal. Aye. But that's not that's today with the environment. Aye. So if you look at your first experience and how horrified you were to a few years down the line, that's a conditioned response. Aye. And that's what I'm trying to that's what I've been trying to say to you about how um when I first started working with VR, you and the gangs, I realised how much a conditioned response I was, because I was the same. Mm -hmm. I was looking at gang violence through the lens of being out the gang and on the other side of it and looking at young people hitting each other with weapons on a Tuesday, Wednesday night on some of the CCTV and I was horrified. I was right. like, look what they're doing to each other, we need to do something to stop this. Right. Whereas when you're inside looking out rather than outside looking in, right. it's there's an excitement in it and there's a sense of you're in the moment and it's like, right. nobody talks about the euphoria of being in that type of setting, but that's that shows you that when initially you went in, you're horrified, few years down the line, you're conditioned. And then I start to understand, well, if I was conditioned, then so are the police when they get into a culture. Because totally. if you're talking about gang as a culture, then what is the police other than a big gang? Mm -hmm. What is the prison system other than a big gang? Mm -hmm. That cultural condition you if you're only very, very careful. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, let's stop this narrative of rehabilitation of offenders That's rubbish. because what is it what are you rehabilitating because if all the evidence is talking about uh, the value system actually that annoys me on their, see on their web page they've got a value system and it talks about integrity um communication uh i can't remember but it's like it's but they have like, got that sean it's the resources that are available to them so right. it's the lack of provision in the system as well. If you had to run a brain scan through everybody who enters a prison, if you had to brain scan them, you would find that a high percentage of them have got traumatic brain injuries. Aye. Now, hang, uh, evidence is now showing that uh, have you heard of hyperbaric oxygen treatment? I think, I think so. Well, there's but... evidence to show, right, that it treats traumatic brain injury. So if you've got a TBI, right, or affect your ability to emotionally regulate, mm -hmm. so your conflict resolution skills will be limited as opposed to somebody who's a healthy individual who hasn't been hurt early heat, right, for mm -hmm. example. It's why 
Um, I mean, people have been injured over the head. They could be a perfectly well-rounded, balanced person. Then all of a sudden they became angry, very reactive to mm -hmm. certain social situations, whereas they weren't like that before. And they're starting to recognise that high percentage of people in prisons. And you see it, you go into a right. prison, there's people who've got scars in their heads. Um, like, oh, I'm bad, like millions of them. Every, of them. I, I, for every 10 people, there are four or five of them who have got scars on their skulls. You don't know the damage that's went on internally. No. But if, if they're running brain scans and they can see the damage that this does to your brain, and they, there's no evidence to show that... Um, modalities like hyperbaric oxygen treatment, which basically puts you in a chamber and puts um, ox oxygen into your system under pressure. So it shoves oxygen to the outer regions of your brain. I've seen the studies, I've seen the brain scans, and it's shown that after things like 15, 16 treatments, it's altered the physicality of your brain. Wow. And it, they can show it on a scan. Right. And these individuals, they've been able to chart that they've made massive behavioural adjustments in their life just through getting this treatment. So people who couldn't hold doing a job, who were always in and out of the system, are now holding doing 12-hour-a-day jobs, right. who couldn't navigate relationships because uh, how quickly we get dysregulated, because that part of their brain was wounded. So prisons need to be about rehabilitating brains, not just, not just giving people information about good and bad or, or some of the... Cognitive programs, if you look at some of the, you would have done the violence programs and um, anger management. And if you've got a wounded stress response, that's what needs, you need strategies that address and those down and heal the stress response system in your brain, which is in the Aye. lower regions of your brain. Things like anger management is to do with the cognitive part, the prefrontal mm. cortex. And that's why when you're calm and regulated, you can see, mm -hmm. like, when you're calm and regulated, you know, I shouldn't have done that. That was wrong. Oh, um, many times do people come back to you and go, after the, the next day, I, listen, mate, I'm sorry about that. But if you that. say to them, at the time of your crime, what happened there? Aye. They'll say things like, I don't know, I just flipped. I just Aye. flipped. Well, why is it? They just flipped. It wasn't Aye. because... Um, just because they've got anger issues or they need their anger managed, that part of their brain get bypassed. So if you've got a wounded stress response and you're in fight or flight, your access to the cortex gets narrowed. Mm -hmm. It doesn't say it gets shut off, it just gets narrowed down mm -hmm. because it's about survival. And that's why a lot of people can't remember things they've done during acting out a crime, for example, in a fight in the street. They're being told what they've done in the statement. Or they're seeing camera footage going, I can't remember doing that. A lot of it's, a lot of it's like, they're under substances as well. Like, I'd say 90% of the totally. prison. It's, 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 there's very very few people, and I've said this before. And that's, another, that's, that's true, Sean. If you add in the substance, then you've also got that bit that stops you getting through all the blocks. Aye. So if you've got psychological, emotional, moral... Um, even spiritual blocks that stop you from acting out a certain right. behaviour, they are only available to you if you've took drugs right. as well, because that limits, that inhibits your ability to say, I can't do this here. So it's kind of, I mean, obviously, I've, there's, there's no, I'm just coining a phrase here, but it's like a kind of double trauma. 
because you're, mm. you're under the, the, the effect of trauma, ACEs, and then you've got a substance on top of that. Totally. Which is actually going to, what, what it's causing what's happening in their society today. Well, that's why alcohol's implicated in this violence. If, if alcohol came out today as a, a brand new drug, it'd be a double class A, they, would, they wouldn't even, mm. they, would, they wouldn't, they wouldn't bring it out. And we're going to speak about that obviously later. Because I know you've got quite an interesting view on the kind of decriminalisation of drugs, but what do you think's kind of at the epicentre of the new of this huge kind of drug death thing that's going on in Scotland now, James? Yeah, well, just what we've spoke about, but obviously how I know there's, there's there's obviously drugs out there in the market that are just totally toppling people right over into overdose, like. Street, and Azalam and street benzos. The street benzos are deadly, mate. Um, like, and obviously, um, obviously, the prescribing services, like, they, they only want to offset that by saying, right, in order to prevent somebody going to the illicit market, then go to your doctor and we'll prescribe you a Valium script because that's what was cycling people towards the illicit market anyway. But the tragedy now is, is they're that entrenched in the addiction. Even if the doctors do turn around and give you what it is you're actually looking for, then you're obviously still vulnerable to go to that market anyway because... You're touching that, the sides with them, I know, but that's, people are taking the real stuff and it's not even... Aye, that's been a pattern of behaviour for a long time because addiction's a pattern of behaviour. You need to understand the psychology of addiction rather than just looking at it through... Um, a symptom level, which is the drug, because the drug's a symptom of deeper seated mm -hmm. troubles. So if it was just about giving people drugs and that would bring down the deaths, then it would be easy. But the reality is, that isn't the case at all. I think for me, um, the main issue is, no, the main, one of the main issues is that they don't understand what they're dealing with. Mm -hmm. They don't understand addiction. Mm -hmm. So people are not really getting a proper diagnosis when they go to a service of what the actual, what is the, the call addiction or disorder. Explain the disorder. How does it manifest physically? How does it manifest mm -hmm. mentally? Psychoeducate people on actually what is addiction mm -hmm. so that the person can say, right, if this is what it is, then what's the best solutions to that? And lay out the plethora of options and allow them to make mm -hmm. the decision the choice on what the option should be over their life, because it ultimately is their life. Mm -hmm. But a big tragedy is the system thinks it knows best and it's weaponized a lot of the research. So what it's saying is things like, I mean, and it, it irks me every time I hear it, that methadone's a gold standard for mm -hmm. treating opiate addiction. The gold standard. And I'm like, no, isn't it? Stop mm -hmm. telling lies. Mm -hmm. That might be what the evidence says in regards to um, putting somebody on a replacement therapy that gives them a level of stability and stops them um, maybe intravenously using, etc. Stop calling it the gold standard because see the medical world that's claiming that this is a gold standard. See if one of their, one of the medical world's professors or doctors unfortunately end up in addiction to opiates. Mm -hmm. Do you think they're telling them it's a gold standard and that there's a mess script for you <laughs> no. and a way back into your surgery and prescribe for other people? 
They're absolutely no. No. They're absolutely no telling them that, Sean. No. The only people that get told that are the people who are the most impoverished. And oh, no. it's the people who are living in poverty. Because see, if you've got money, if you're a doctor and you have a certain social economic class, and it's why Dan McGarvey wrote The Social Distance Between Us, Aye. because it'll dictate what kind of treatment that Aye. you'll get called gold standard. Aye. So the gold standard addiction treatment for a doctor in Scotland, if they end up addicted to opiates and they need to go to residential rehab, it's Castle Craig Aye. and the borders. Scottish government don't fund Castle Craig. So what would be the difference between, obviously I've basically answered it, but what would be the difference between we Davy for Poso and we Davy for Mogai, if both of them had an opiate addiction, what what what, what what's the difference there? Um, with Davy, it's called the 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 problem parents, problematic parents. This guy's got the kind of good life that's maybe ended up taking too many cocodamol and ended up with an opiate addiction. What's it? What, what's the difference? Well, the degree of um, well. Our capacity to recover will be greater if we've already got um, social capital. So if you're coming from a healthy family system and you're only living in poverty and you have already maybe even went through school and got standard grades and you're educated and you've been working and you've found yourself addicted to painkillers, your chances of recovery for that are greater than say we Johnny Fiposo who's grew up in absolute poverty under conditions of stress maybe experienced neglect in the family system and that doesn't mean that you don't experience that in the middle class area no, no. what I'm saying is he's got a different starting point Sean mm -hmm. but at the same time even though they've got a different starting point the both of them can recover mm -hmm. if the systems and services recognise that if somebody lacks that type of social capital that this individual's got, mm -hmm. and it's up to us as the intervention to replicate it in the social environment. And the only people I've seen who really replicate the social environment in regards to social capital are the recovery communities. Mm -hmm. So if you look at NA, Cocaine Anonymous, Alcoholics Anonymous, and they call these places fellowships, but what they are is just a big bunch of people for different social economic backgrounds who can gravitate to any one setting in any given night and talk about what's happening in their recovery process and in that social setting they provide the social capital that somebody else needs or somebody could orientate by in order to get better right. but <clears throat> the issue with the system is they're kind of averse to um, the 12 step community for some reason which I I don't really understand, um, to be honest, because it is a it's harm reduction and in, in its essence. I'm like, mm -hmm. I've never worked out why they've got harm reduction over here and abstinence-based recovery over here, and they've basically created a dichotomy. I don't know who started that. Maybe it's the two of them. I don't know. But what I do know is, is that there's a ravine running through between the two mm -hmm. of them, and it seems to be that the evidence base is over here for harm reduction and methadone and all these other medical... Mm -hmm. uh, driven models that seem to be better than maybe navigating into this arena where the reality is the two of them for me are, are one of the same plethora of options that should be available to everybody and they shouldn't be separated out and allow give people their self-efficacy and autonomy back. I think 
I was at a roadshow not long ago, and it was, I can't remember, it was SDF, I think, they were running it. And uh, they were talking about um, human rights and all that, and they were talking about human rights in prison and giving people their human rights back and giving them a, a kind of rights-based approach to, to their own thing. So they've done a kind of play where a doctor, um, a lassie went in basically and says, look, I want to get off my methadone and stuff. And she was like, nah, I think you're better on it. And she just wrote another script. And they done another one where they went in and they sat down and the doctor sat and basically kind of went, these are your options and this is what you can do and we could send you here and you can go to this recovery community. That's not happening, James. It's <laughs> not happening. No, no, I'm, I'd, I'm, I'd love it to happen. But what, they, what annoyed me, right, was... Um, a guy, I don't know if they were, if they were, if they were live for prison for some, for somehow, but a guy had asked for prison, can you explain how we've got human rights in prison? And the guy said, the only, the only right that you've really no go is your right to liberty, uh, right to freedom. Yeah. That's curtailed when you've broke your contract with society. Yeah. And I, 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 I did annoy me. I get really annoyed because I, I know how, you know, you're out self prison that you don't get. What annoys you about it, but? What annoyed me was um, the whole thing that it's not true. You don't get, you don't yeah. get human rights. You don't get that. You go, you don't go up to a doctor and go, do you know what, doctor, I, I'm really struggling and uh, my missus has just left us. I've got an hour seven year today and I've started taking subby. I like half it. The doctor doesn't sit down and go, right, let's think about what we can do. Yeah. Let's get a care plan. Right, so, aye, the next thing that's happening to you is that doctor, and nine times out of ten is going to go and tell his staff, uh-huh. he's taking subby, by the way, and you, next yeah, thing you're fired yeah, in for a drug test yeah. and you're failing it. Yeah. This is, so I got annoyed and I actually said, can you explain to me where the human rights are? I said, I'd love to see it. I went, but it's actually annoyed me as an ex-prisoner. It's annoyed me. No, you have not annoyed me, but the, the way you've said it is as if like... Yeah. Um, so I think trying to miseducate people as well, I don't, it's like misinformation, you're, t- you're telling lies, you're, t- yeah. you're, t- you're, you're making out as if this is what's happening in the prisons. Well, well a prison's a coercive environment, so they just want everybody to conform. Aye. So they don't want to do the deep therapeutic work. Aye. It means that you're doing relational depth, it means that you've got... Um, a real emotional investment on stopping seeing this person coming back into the prison. Aye. Now, I've often thought, Sean, see if a prison officer was getting a kickback, a financial kickback for every prisoner they saw Lessie mm-hmm. after they left the prison, do you think they would have a different type of relationship hmm. with the prisoner? A good question. I know, so I, nah, that's a good question. I know what you mean, I. Know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. So it's, it's, I mean, they're, they're poorly, especially like your private run prisons, Adiwell and stuff like that. They're poorly, they're poorly paid. They're get six weeks training and they get fired in the halls with like real hardened criminals who know the score, know how to play the system, and before you know it, that some of the staff. But they're in the minority. As I, you know, Sean. They're I, not. That's not the whole. They're in the minority in the population. I, I. I agree. I, I think my my time in Adiwell, I can't I, I can't explain how mental it was at the start. Now I know it's just a not a prison, but people yeah. wouldn't believe 
the stuff that known. I'm not going to go into it all, but people just wouldn't believe the stuff that was going yeah. on. I've got my pal who's, um, he got two years, he got an LRO. Now, I'm not saying he's an angel, but he's done 15 year, uh, two year. Um, and he always does his drug tests. Uh, yeah. So um, that that's back to your original question. Human rights. Aye. So where's the human rights for a guy who's got a public health issue? I know. I.e. he's got addiction. That's a disorder in its own right. Scotland's in a public health crisis. It recognises addiction as a public health problem. So it means that if you've got the addictive disorder, you've got an illness. So it's implying mm. you've got an illness that you need treatment for. And if you're so many years there a tariff because you can't pass a drug test, then they're treating that as a criminal justice issue, not a public health one. I know. They're punishing you for having an illness. So say you've got an eating disorder mm -hmm. and you're five stone over your healthy weight and the prison system are putting you in the digger for it. So they say that's you gained a pound this month. That's you. Um, uh, that's you. You're you're not getting. I love the way you put things. You're not getting progress through the system. Would you think the public outcry would be for that? <laughs> no. Do you know what I mean? They would Aye. say, "Here's a guy with an eating disorder, and you're punishing him for it. You're shaming him for it. You're isolating him for it, and you wonder why he's not getting better. And any chance he can get, he grabs food to eat it because the food offer, offers him some relief for uh, the stress that Aye. he's living under." And here's somebody with a drug addiction who can't pass a drug test and you're trying to punish him out of it. And, and that's the thing, that's the thing. It's, that is frustrating. You can't punish trauma and addiction out of people. No chance. Absolutely no chance. And uh, you know, back to what you were saying, I was talking to a boy last week who got a nine-year tariff, um, young boy, and a fight um individual uh sadly lost his life and he got nine years and he spent 27 years in the jail for he was 17 27 year I know because he couldn't pass a drug test i was i felt like bursting at greeting me just talking to him like, you have been utterly robbed i have always lost his life i know but he's still going to live with the stain in that the stain in that in his own heart and here's a boy who a tariff was set for him, who after nine years has ended up, he never went into the prison system with an addiction. No. Ends up exposed to all the risks. The prison exposed him to the risks. Ah, I know. And he's the one that's blamed for making bad choices. But you created an environment where he was living under conditions of stress and probably got all sorts of unresolved stuff he's in past, highly likely, going on the evidence. If it's the same person, James, right? Sorry, but gutted. I'm right. It's the same person. Yeah, I think he went through the tap end about 10 times. Like, tap end yeah. to reviewers, right? Basically, means like when you're training for freedom, you get a wee bit more freedom. He failed that 10 times. Now, see, if you were to, like, if you were to kind of score that or kind of any put a kind of any kind of scoring on it, the people I would say people go through the tap end you're lucky 5-10% go through it any other business yeah. it'd be a failing you would yeah. get a sack you would, and you would, they would, <laughs> you would, they would fire it and restart the whole lot and go this is not working man like, you see what we're doing wrong but they blame the individual if it's at the individual level then they blame it's easy to take them off the hook when they can blame you 
Aye. And here's this boy out for two years. He's been out for two years. He's in recovery now. He's got his addiction well under control. He's surrounded with a community that loves him and cares about him. Aye. And I've never seen, I've, I've watched him for a distance for a wee while. I don't know him, know him. Um, but obviously I navigate uh, certain aspects of the recovery community. Do you know I've never seen that boy angry? Do you know I've, there's nothing in that boy that I think that he was capable of doing anything like that again and ending up back in prison? All that boy had was an untreated addiction that needed the right treatment to address it. And he didn't really get it until he exposed to a recovery cafe in Berlin, which is only a recent thing that's happening in prisons, these recovery cafes. Well, I was was lucky enough to be one of the people to set it up with Natalie and that. Um, And obviously, I know exactly who you're talking about. Um, And he's such a good boy. He's a lovely boy. Um, And that's... But but when I'm talking about my pal, I mean, that boy's my pal and all right, but... Um, when I'm talking about the, uh, he's done two. He got he got a two wreck, right? So he gets two year. There's no way that he can go through and do tap end and all that in that time, right? So they've gave him a yeah. sentence that's already loaded. Then he fails drug test after drug. I I I don't know. You might be able to explain, yeah, because I know you're amazing with this kind of stuff, James. But I feel. I bought I bought, I bought, I bought myself strip last week and stuff like that. And I, I, and I'm I feel but I, every time he phones me, I feel like green. Yeah. I, I, I do I, I and I I, I kinda tell him about like the the good times and all that I'm having and all, I feel uh, guilty. Yeah, yeah. And that's 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 human to feel that's normal. That's normal. The see I've often and I heard it heard it said no long ago we um Fritzy Horseman for the Compassion Prison Project. And it's a statement I've used for years. There's nothing more lethal than a human being without hope. If you take hope away from human beings, if you take away the hope of victory or adverse serial circumstances, you create a monster. And if you've got a system that's creating that, then... Churn them out or no? Hell mend you. Hell mend you. Where is your conscience? No. And that is probably... A, and I do get some people they need they they do need um managed in the community, they do need managed to a certain level. Some people are just gonna be violent, Sean, I know, you know. You get, you get, and you get people that, and some people right. like MAPA, like mm-hmm. MAPA Aye. needs to exist for certain individuals, but they're in the minority and some people get caught in that mm-hmm. setting, whereas it isn't a true reflection on their real nature. It's the conditions they've been living under and the rules that have been set for them. It's just created this total trauma you, response or exacerbated you, trauma that was already there and unresolved. No, yeah, yeah, honestly, you, you put it so well. You're just so eloquent when you do these things, James. But even if you look at organised crime and you look at the kind of higher end, the, the higher levels of it, if you want to call it whatever, these guys, some of these guys are the ni- nicest guys you'll meet as well. And most of them, if you were to go, how did you end up where you are? They'd go, I don't know. Yeah. I just happened. Like, it was a natural just, order thing. Every, yeah. I, just, I don't know. Like, how did you become this big? I don't I know. know. And the system makes statements like, oh, they're career criminals. And you're like, you, you make that sound as if they just, like, one day at high school said, nah, 
I'm no doing the medical degree. I'm just going to go for the organised crime <laughs> degree. You know what I mean? <laughs> it's like it's, it's as if we make a choice, this decision. Whereas if you're grown up in an environment, you've got no other frame of reference for how to come at life. Hey. Whereas I look at the internal frames of reference I've got now, Sean, as opposed to what I had when I came in to my like, healing journey, right? Hey. That's what it was. It was a healing journey. Their frame of references were absolutely unavailable to me. I didn't know how to come at life without some angle being involved in it or thinking somebody was trying to pull some mm -hmm. sort of angle on me or thinking I needed to be on the front fit if people were ready to take advantage of anything. Right. And then I start to, when I start to heal, I move to a different level of consciousness. I get a new internal frame of reference and I start to see the insanity mm -hmm. of a lot of it. And I, I see that it's all, it's, it's, it's the healing that creates it. Mm -hmm. It isn't the, because I went to college and got an education. It's today with the, the willingness to enter into um, participating in a daily practices and processes mm -hmm. that enable me to heal the wounds that I was operating with that were internal, mm -hmm. but just showed up externally and I often think that my frame of reference growing up under the conditions like for example I was talking about it today that um, when I grew up I thought everybody get battered mm -hmm. I thought it was just it was just like a normal thing in our environment right. where if you done something wrong you'd die allergy kind of was it was in the way aye, aye. But... you think back then Sean it wasn't that long before I arrived at primary school that teachers were belting folk with belts. So a teacher was allowed to order a weapon <laughs> and go into the and school. They did order them, I think. Ah, anyway, I think they ordered right. the big There was a place that, that made them. <laughs> there was a place in Scotland that made them. And they, they went into school with a wee weapon in a case. And if a pupil was out of line, then they could dictate on what the punishment would look like. And your parents had to sit in the house and they were all right. Their parents, Aye. obviously, it was banned by the time I arrived at primary school, about two years before it. But I think how much of that violence in the culture had to do with how it was acted out in the house. Because if it's all right for a pre professional to do that, do you what? Who's getting paid to do it? Aye. Then. I remember it, my dad saying there was... It's open season in the house, that. isn't it? Aye. <laughs> and that's the way it was. It was like, so, but it's it's abnormal. Because when you look at um, hitting somebody with a belt through the lens of, if I had to hit you with a belt and then measure your cortisol, your cortisol would be through the roof. Right. So it was done as a tool to control the classroom. Right. But it was violence, mate. It of was course. violence. And that's the thing um, where the abnormal becomes normal. And even if you look at smoking, I mean, when I tell my daughter, my daughter's oldest daughter's 19, when I tell my oldest daughter that people used to smoke motors in the house and you'd be sitting in the house with your granny and that and your eyes would be nicking. <laughs> yeah. the, the, the walls were yellow. McDonald's, nothing. Aye, folk smoked in planes <laughs> and she's like, no way, did they? Because it's, she's not been cultured into it. Aye. So it's abnormal to her. Aye. But it's abnormal to me now. Aye. But that just shows you if what, if you're how grown, quickly aye, you've, your internal aye. frame of reference mm -hmm. can change and that, and, that, and that's the same if you look at the culture of the new what do we see it's normal the new 
it will be abnormal in 10 years. And I think that's why the trauma-informed, our trauma research science is sweeping the country, where people are starting to realise that how trauma shows up in family systems, how it's how it manifests in relationships, i.e. also the relationship with yourself, how you view yourself. I mean, if you think about it like this, and I tried to explain it to cops when I first started um, volunteering with the Violence Reduction Unit's gang project, I was like, um, these wins are traumatised, what are we doing about the trauma? And they would look at me as if, what are you talking about, trauma? Right. That's not a statement to come out an ex-gang member. You shouldn't be making <laughs> statements like that. And then I would change the language. And I changed it to, these wins don't love themselves, don't they? They'd go, aye, 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 aye. I'd say, think about it. They're hitting each other with swords on a Wednesday night and a Tuesday night. I went, if you've got healthy self-respect, then you don't put your body in that way. And the firing line where you could get hurt by a weapon. People with healthy self-love don't go like that. I'm away down to Barrafield. Uh, chop, chop, hang up. Do you have a go at this gang fight and everybody's talking about? So it's fundamentally pointing towards the relationship with yourself must be at such a level where mm -hmm. you don't care. Can I ask you this, right? And I, I could listen to you all day, James, right? With this kind of stuff, because you, you're definitely by far one of the best I've ever heard speaking about it. Um, but do you think, I, I can't help but think for a lot of people it's just a buzzword, ACEs, trauma. No, I, um, of People don't know what they're talking about, but they think they know what they're talking about. Yeah. You know what you're talking about. You've researched the life of it. You've came to your own conclusions. Um, how can trauma mean different things to other people? I, I mean, trauma's trauma. So there's these people that have got different, no, that's no trauma, this is trauma. You've, you've had the kind of, like well the luck that can well the, the luck to kind of work with some of the best projects in Scotland like with Fritzy mm -hmm. and Gabber Matty. How is that and how can you take can you tell us anything about that project? Can you tell us anything about the kind of prison environment? How did it work in Scotland? Well the thing about um so the trauma movement in Scotland happened after the back of the ACES movement. So people started to understand, right? These adverse childhood experiences cause trauma. It doesn't mean they are the trauma. Having adverse childhood experiences doesn't mean you're, you're traumatised. Right. So there's fundamental reasons as to why that is. So it's dead complex, right? So, like, for example, one man's trauma is another man's Tuesday, for example. But folks say things like, oh, I was running to get the bus today and I missed the bus. I was heavy traumatised. Or I was out at the weekend there and I couldn't get a taxi home for Glasgow. It was traumatic. <laughs> like, Aye, that's no. no trauma, mate. Aye. That's distress. Aye. You were a wee bit distressed. Aye. Trauma is when it alters the relationship you've got with yourself. And it's mm -hmm. more about your reaction to life, I know. So it's the overactive stress response and it's also the disconnection for your true nature. You've and become, that's... And that's sorry. No, on you go, James. On you go. And that's that thing where... You could be sitting in a room full of people and feel like the loneliest guy in the world. Mm -hmm. And you'll think there's something wrong with you and you'll not know where it is and you'll have nothing to hang your jacket on. I've been there. Aye, absolutely. That's the, that's a trauma. Trauma is a disconnection for your true self. So that sense of disconnect, that sense of separation, that outside mm -hmm. looking in feeling, 
Nasa trauma response. And trauma shows up differently for all different people because mm. there's many symptoms to it. And that's why once you identify trauma personally in your own life, you need to become your own trauma detective. You right. need to go and do the deep dive into it and help you make sense of it. And then what will happen is that's cathartic as well. Mm -hmm. So what I enable you to go, I'm on no right in the head. I'm wounded. Right. I'm wounded and I can heal. That's why I don't like folks saying, I'm broken. Right. I'm broken. I'm near you. I'm blah, blah. And I'm like, no, you're not. You're wounded. Mm -hmm. And wounds can heal. Because that's what the word, Gabber says, the word trauma means. Isn't it? it means mm -hmm. to wound. That's what, that's mm -hmm. basically the definition of trauma. It's to wound. I loved his analogy of the, the plaster. When he says, like, you, you get a wound. He says, so what you do is, he says, you put a plaster on it, but it's still sore. Aye. So you bump into a door one and you go, fuck, I need to put a bandage on that. That was still sore. So you yeah. put a bandage on it. And then you hit the, the door again, it's still sore. So then the next thing, you're, you're moving about differently, trying to keep your arm away. Uh, so you're, and that's, it's similar. Instead of taking it, taking it back, stripping right back and healing the wound on your arm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And then you can move about and you can navigate your life, as you say, uh, the way that you want to. Yeah. Um, I see one of the things, Sean, it's misunderstood as well. It's like people say things to me all the time. So why is it, James, that uh, why is it that my wee brother ended up caught up in addiction and I turned out all right? I went to uni and college and all that, and and we grew up in the same family. Like my dad was alcoholic, aye, and he was a bit unpredictable and. I brought a lot of stress into the house, blah, 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 but I never ended up an addict. Why is it he did and why is it I didn't? So I get questions like that all the time. Mm -hmm. But the, the misconception is, is that people think they grew up in the same family. I know. Because no two human beings perceive the world the same. And so, I think you have a different relationship. Like, it doesn't matter if how many years difference, you're going to get a different mother and father for your uh, brother. Exactly, and that's the perception. So your perception is based on, obviously aging stage of development, obviously your sensitivity, I know. Aye. So if you're um, highly emotionally sensitive and your sibling isn't, they've no got that part mm -hmm. of their temperament. So it's like some people get blue eyes, some people get green eyes. Mm -hmm. Some people are sensitive, some people aren't. It's the way you're born. It's mm -hmm. part of your personality. You're born like that. No, of course. And the person who's highly sensitive is the one who gets hurt most by parents separating, by um, the dad being aggressive and um, coercively controlling towards the ma, mm -hmm. they get wounded at a deeper level than the sibling who isn't as emotionally sensitive. So there's too many variables to hang it on the one thing. Aye. But the, the a lot of people try and do that, but don't they? Oh, a lot of people try and go, but I've, I I I don't try. I've I think I've got an understanding of trauma, right? And I think I've got a, a, no, not at your level, right? But I know I've got, I know I've got an understanding of it, and I've got quite a good but I, li I sit and listen to people when they're, especially in the recovery world and I, I go you've not got a clue what you're talking about yeah but that's their journey aye and I like I, I don't necessarily say they've no they, they've no got a clue what they're talking about I'm just I think you're not there yet aye so I, I've had people like cross sharing at me for, across the room but they're speaking at me mm -hmm. but they're not saying it aye and they'll be saying things like trauma's a lot of shite and blah 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 and I had this and I had that and, and I just let them be it's like mm -hmm. my job's not to change anybody it's just to dance 
my dance. Ah, of course. And and it's that thing where it's your truth, if they want it? to come and have a conversation, if they want to peel something back or get a new insight into something or understand themselves better and they ask me the question, I will only impose myself on them because it's never ever well received if you impose it mm -hmm. because uh, the person needs to give you a license to do that. So that's why like a podcast works so well. You ask a question, you've mm -hmm. given me a license to answer it. I ask you a question, you've got license. Mm -hmm. And whatever way you answer it, I'm able to take because I gave you a license to do it. But if you're not giving people license, for example, Sean, if you just walk up to somebody and tell them, you know, order, this is mm -hmm. what you're doing wrong, they'll get defensive. And that's, that's yeah, it's just a human nature, isn't it? Absolutely. So if that's, how do we, like, I would say prisons are one of the most disrespectful places in the world, right? Mm -hmm. That I've seen um, people just don't respect authority. People f find it hard to respect. And then the, the staff as well. I went to Lomas um, and I said, look, I think I would like to start a group. I says, but I would like to start a group with staff and cons on it at the same time. And she went, I don't know if that would work. I went... I don't know if it would work either. I mean, but what I'm wanting to try and show is that they're all traumatized and like they're conditioned yeah. the yeah. same way just to see how it works. Yeah. Oh, I don't know how you would do that. I went, well, I'll tell you how you do it. I said, you pick three staff that you know will be responsive to it. Yeah. And you pick three prisoners who will be responsive to it. Yeah. And we see if it works with them. That's easy. And if it works with them, then we can work on it and see and try and maybe break down the harder people. I went, I don't know if that would work. I mean, you're not even fucking trying it. You're not even giving me a shot. Maybe it's, cause it's, maybe it's because it's not their idea, Sean. Aye. Think about it. Sometimes it's because it's not their idea that it'll not work. Aye. I'm the... I'm the recovery guy and I'm the head of recovery and Lomas, it's no, you're not coming in and with you your ideas and hanging professional up. power, mate. I know. Professional power's massive and that's that thing about why I'm a big fan of honing the power back to communities because most trauma's worked out in community. Mm -hmm. And that's why I'm a big fan of doing away with short-term prison sentences and handing prisoners back to community settings where they could be supported better because they don't work out what they need to work out in these fast-paced, toxically stressed environments mm -hmm. at, that's full of drugs. Mm -hmm. And that's why community disposals um, need to be a thing. But it's no kind of just be a pet, go and paint that street and go and oh, paint absolutely. That. You need to have substance to it. It's got to have, there's three human needs, like purpose, meaning and contribution. So there's got to be a sense of purpose in it. They've got to be able to meaning make and it's got to have a deep sense of contribution. So if they're doing stuff at the community level, like make them visible in the communities they might have been causing drama in. Mm -hmm. So if the short-term prison sentences in the community that they maybe come for are causing drama in, then give them the chance to make amends to that community, i.e. is it a children's swing park? that they're helping rebuild that wasn't getting used before. Are they building a football park for our young people to right. play football and it's, it's, it's in disarray rather than going and painting a community centre in some middle class area no. that, that 
that's alienating them. Aye. And it's meaningless. It's just basically because you, you know guys yourself are allowing them to volunteer in places hell, like I've got four years left and all that. I just I see if I do this Saturday, they're gonna cut aye. it. But they say if I do weekends, they'll give me ten hours off, and you're like, what's this doing for anybody? Absolutely. Like, it's it's doing nothing. Like you're you're no getting this guy. This guy's just going right back into his old habits. You've taught him nothing. Mm-hmm. All you've taught him is that, like, I, you can you. you you don't go to prison for a, for for committing crimes, whereas if you were to get some substance behind it, and even getting guys like yourself to come in and even speak and going, no, you go and listen to people. Even yeah. like, and, and I know I hate that because I hate forcing them to the end, but I'd rather have that. Like going in well, and they would listen sign to up boys. for it anyway because even like if you look at the prison to rehab scheme, aye, it's run the wrong way, Sean. Aye. Um, it's no folly doing the wrong way. There should be an option where you can leave prison after a sentence Aye. and go to residential rehab and address addiction. Aye. Uh, but but there, there should be rehab in prison. There should be rehab instead of prison. Aye. So it should be like six months here, or I've no alternative to send you here. Well, many That's holes, your choices. Many folks say you can't enforce recovery, but you enforce every other mm-hmm. type of sentencing. Every other type of sentence is enforced. Mm-hmm. Like go and paint there, go and go here, go and do this. All your other disposals, it's no enforcement. Mm-hmm. If you give the person the option, then you give them the decision. If they want to come give them the option. talk shit, then that's fine. But it's more effective and it, there's more chance of you gaining traction with that person than, as you say, is going and pick up rubbish and going... Because what you're basically doing is telling them again... This is all you're worth. Uh, shame based, up. a lot of it's shame based, and it just. The, I was speaking to a guy who was sent, he was basically punted out of Canada for a felony. He was born in Scotland, but lived most of his life in Canada if he was a wee boy, but Aye. he hadn't got citizenship. So he reached a certain threshold, and the justice system said, away back to Scotland, but he's no family here. So he just lands here. Um, and doesn't know where to go. Fortunately for him, he he um, was lying sleeping homeless in the city centre, and a guy from Narcotics Anonymous is walking past, just walking past, stops and starts talking to him. He didn't hear anybody, blah, right. blah, blah, and he's like, through to Canada, and he says, you can't stay out here tonight, you won't stay with me, and we'll get you a housing service tomorrow. Who does that, Sean? Who no. else does that? No. And that's not a guy who would bone line shouting that he done that. That's a guy no. just anonymously going about his business. So happens to be a member of a recovery fellowship. Takes him to the housing the next day. Ends up taking him in Narcotics Anonymous. And the guy's been in abstinence-based recovery since. Now Hodge's doing a full-time job. Hasn't he re-offended? He's <laughs> doing amazing. He's helped a ton of folk as that's well. That's just one, one person. Whereas... If you walk it through the town, the new, every doorway is full of people mad with it, people hanging. And I, I here's, here's the beauty of the guy that helped him. This is what he said to me. He says, he took me into his house, James, and I kid you not, it was an East End. He says, the guy had, uh, the guy's close that he was staying in was infested with rats. Mm-hmm. He says, I could hear them running through the space in the walls when I was staying in this guy's house. He said, I felt safer when I was sleeping, <laughs> sleeping in the street. <laughs> and uh, 
I'm that's remarkable that a guy who's living in <laughs> a flat that's rat, rat infested walks by a guy in the street and still get the humanity, the compassion to say, you don't need to stay out here tonight, come with me, we'll get you out. Helps him get a house, even though his house is in that condition. That's amazing. It's remarkable, mate. So, obviously, I'm going to try and move on a wee bit, James, right? Because we've not got all day, and um, I, would, I could sit and talk to you all day on about loads of things, but what was your journey to America like? Was it Bad Boy? Was it Homeboy, Homeboy home Industries. Uh, I loved it, because I, I knew about Homeboy for a long time before it, and... Um, I'd met Greg Boyle, who was the founder. I'd met some of the um, recovered gang members who'd went through their programme as well. They came to Scotland. I'd shared that platform with Greg Boyle. And Homeboy was everything that I thought it would be. Uh, the guy that I went with, um, Ian, his name's Ian, um, Kraken guy, uh, he... he um, He's a cop. He was, aye, aye, he's, aye. he's retired now. Um, he was a cop, and he totally believed in redemption and um, rehabilitation, but knew that he needed to get rehabilitation in its proper context. He'd been to Homeboy, and he was like, "To me, you need to go over here." Mm -hmm. um, and I went over with Wayne, and Homeboy uh, was remarkable, mate. I kid you not. It's the whole emphasis is on rehabilitation and then they get rehabilitation in its proper context. Right. Like, you go into Homeboy for the first 18 months, four hours a day are about therapy and the other four are about working and you get paid a wage. So you basically, it's a job, but what you sign up for as part of the job is the therapeutic work. Mm -hmm. So for four, four hours in the day, out with the normal day-to-day -day running of the job, you're in group therapy. Mm -hmm. um, you're in, you've got your own designated navigator for addiction, addictions, if it's actually issues, you've got um, uh, attachment-based programs for um, how to understand babies and attachment, and they've got tattoo remove, a tattoo Amazing. remove, what runs all day, every day, taking tattoos. Are gang tattoos? Are they gang tattoos off you, yeah, um, And What's the success rate like? Uh, I can't remember, but other um, so it's a, it's. I'd say it's probably about seventy thirty seventy peer led, and thirty other professionals who are like psychotherapists mm -hmm. and um, come from different types of professions, and uh, the harmony in the place, mate. I kid you not, Sean. It's. Unbelievable. I, it's hard to describe it. You, it's better felt than felt. And Ian, when he took me over, he says, I don't know what it is about the place, James, but there's something that just pull, pulls you back in. And uh, the, only, the only thing I can describe that is, and it's like consciousness, it's vibrating, it's calibrating at a high level of consciousness. And I'm like, no wonder people recovering, healing here. Everybody gets a hug coming in the door. And these are guys who have done... 30 years in the jail. Mm -hmm. These are guys who were sentenced at 17 to 127 years to life. And mm -hmm. um, some, that guy in particular, fought his case and managed to get back out after like 27 years. And the compassion and love and kinship and connect that's in the place is unbelievable. Mm -hmm. And I, I've often wanted to replicate that back here in Scotland. And we tried to do it, but it's funding again. 
and homeboy relies on philanthropic donations. So they get millions for mm -hmm. producers in Hollywood and Hollywood actors who believe in the programme. And they basically give homeboy the money. Matt Wahlberg and that, ah, see, yeah, Jim Carrey, yeah. all they guys. They give them money every year. Um, some other big corporations as well, because they fundamentally believe in the work and they've obviously got a social conscience and want to fund something mm -hmm. like that. But it's because of the results. They see the results mm -hmm. and they visit the place and they've formed relationships with some of these guys who don't want to be Hollywood actors mm -hmm. that have went through their programme as well. Dan, that big, I'm, only, I'm asking out of interest, Danny Trevio, or do you remember that big guy? The big, was he, aye, was aye. he part of it? No, no, no. no Danny Trevio, he got um, sober in Alcoholics Anonymous, didn't he? He's about aye. 65 years sober. Aye. That Danny Trevio. Looks you know, about I, read, I read a story about him, right? And I don't know how much truth in it, right? <laughs> but he says he was in with Charles Manson. He says that Charles Manson, he says he took, him and his gang took Charles Manson under control um, and protected them. Right. Because Charles Manson could hypnotise them. And they could hypnotise them to be out their nut. I don't know how much truth he took. Yeah, I mean, yeah, he obviously yeah. talks about this. Yeah. And he says he used to say, right, like, I want to get for last like heroin, that, and to, that Manson would do what he was doing. He says, and you do it, you're not. He says, and the guy next door says, I want to do that. He says, I want it, I want it. And he, try, he was trying it with this guy, yeah. and he wasn't working. And he went, how? He went, I've never took it before. Oh, and he says, right. because uh, the guy had never took it before. Because he played that, And I was, I was amazed. I don't know how much yep. truth's in it. You know what I mean? I mean, it's just right. a guy say, but I don't know why he would lie, but yeah. um, I was amazed by that. I was like, that's nuts. So you've got to experience that. And obviously I know drugs are all just a kind of gateway to chemicals that are all within you anyway. There's nothing uh, drugs putting into your system that's it's only, only, already actually, exist, it's only a gateway. Um, so how do we get politicians then, James, to be more brave and take more... Go go go! Take risks with stuff like that. Or take like with homeboy and stuff like that. Like bring that to Scotland. How do we get them to be braver? How how do we do it? I think they just need to follow the evidence. The evidence is there, and I think they just need to have the courage to actually follow the evidence and stop being swayed by public opinion and or the mood music of the public. Like politicians just need to be brave, mate. Mm -hmm. Rather than rather than I think red tops and that have got a lot to do with the media. Oh, aye. Oh, aye. Because if you look at, for example, when Jamie Bulger, and young Jamie Bulger lost his life, um, they boys were vilified at done it, but they were children themselves. They were mm -hmm. like, children who were deeply traumatised as well. Mm -hmm. Who, um, like, the history of what happened to the boys is you'd need, you'd need you'd need to be, to be able to do it. I mean obviously I, I I can't I find that hard to watch that stuff but I understand where you're coming from um, but that's what I'm saying about the, the it's, just, it's an empty and after that unit, see it? after that the the mood music of the public swayed the political system so they started um, the rhetoric and policies on having mere um, harsher sentences and and that's because the public swayed the political system because mm -hmm. they want they play the nude music to get the votes. Mm -hmm. That's why the Tory party are still in power because they're very, understand they're that, very clever at doing that, mate. 
I, I, it's ingenious, right? I know, and I, I watch it, and because obviously, I but don't if you know. listen to Labour, they know. See, if you listen to mm-hmm. Labour, they know. They're trying to win, but they votes as well, so they're doing the hard ah, part. I know, they, I know. Labour are now doing the hard part of the line. Tougher sentences, more police in the street. I know. Build bigger prisons. Oh, it's just horrible. I mean, I I done a politics degree, right? And well, well done. Three years law, three years politics, but um, some of the stuff amazed me that I used to read, and I was like, "Is this for real?" Like we we sell like um, carbon emissions. We sell so each country's got like a percentage of carbon emissions that are allowed. Uh-huh. We buy like say like a country that like Afghanistan that doesn't use any kind of fossil fuels or anything. We buy their their kind of. Uh, the right, the right to whatever kind of uh, Your resources, resource, and I'm like, that is mad. That's mental. Yeah. And it's just, it's, it's, it's as you say. How can a guy like Jake? We were talking about. I was talking about it, Andy McLaren the other day when we were talking about um, Jacob Rees Mogg. He came out and says, "I've never no." Rishi Sunak said, "I've never had a working class pal." Yeah. But he's the prime minister of ninety nine percent working class people. Yep. So, any politicians out there? How do you, I mean? Do, do they need to be clever about it, James? Do they need to go? Uh, do they need to try and backdoor it to try and get make it sound better to the public, or do they just try and go like be brave and go look? This is how it should, we need we need to change and try and explain it better to the public. Well, they would need to know what they were explaining, and I don't think they fully know. No, I agree with you. And obviously, um, Westminster. Um, nah, they've not got a clue. Exactly. And they're ultimately who you need to ultimately sway. Because they've got the hell thing over, over here, haven't they? They've got no. the control of that, no? No, no health. Um, they control a lot of the justice system, but a lot of the decisions that are made around about that, but... Um, it's so could Scotland make it a public health? Could like addiction? Could Scot Scot is it Scotland then? Is it within Scotland's power to aye. do that? Aye. Aye. I don't know why I've I've got that in my head that they're making it that it's Westminster. I don't know where I've got that for then. Don't know where I've got that for. Well, that's the party line for them because right. if it's about blaming them, then who does it take responsibility away for? Right. So there is probably a wee bit of kind of. Uh, kind of misinformation going out for them then to make it as if it's Westminster that's got the power. Aye. Yep. Sad, isn't it? Aye. Because obviously um, Westminster had, if you look at Decrim, they had the, they had the lever in regards to what Decrim should look like, but they don't have the lever on what happens in Scotland if we declare a public health emergency on what we actually do about that. They've not got that power. It's interesting you bring up the Decrim thing, right? Because... I'm a kinda I'm for decriminalising drugs, right? Right. But you as usual have gave me food for thought. Um you sent me that Washington Post thing, which was really interesting. And um obviously the way that you put that even that twit tweet that you gave me the day. I know uh, that's a better model what you're saying. Um I agree with that, but I'm just talking for what people say, like, 
a, a, why should somebody not have the right to put whatever they want into their body, if you know what I'm talking about? Well, they have got that right. Because it's no, um, it's not against the law to be under the influence. Mm-hmm. You've always had that right. Mm-hmm. You don't get locked up for being under the influence. You get locked up for your behaviour while you're under the influence. Mm-hmm. The same as you do if it's alcohol. And that's decriminalised. My concern with it is, I don't think you should be convicted if you get caught with... But you wouldn't be convicted if you were caught. Well, you, well, well, actually, you can get done for drinking in the street. I know. So what they're going to do, run about decrim, how wisely they're going to do it? Because will they use that as a tool to say, you're um, denying me my human rights if I want to have a, 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 a hit? Well, that Washington Post article you talk showed me, kind of show, like Portugal, there's people just smoking crack in the street. and Openly, that's openly right. And, I mean, how would you how would you stop that if somebody wanted to smoke a crack joint or something? How are you going to but stop Here's that? my concern, mate, real concern, mate, Sean. It's built on the premise that they think it'll take the drugs away from the illicit market. Mm-hmm. So they think that um, decrim will obviously stop um, drug addicts being criminalised, right? Mm-hmm. And... But it's got wider implications because it's ultimately the movement towards legalisation. Mm-hmm. Because the next argument will be, right, it will take a, the illicit market away from, let's take it away from the organised crime groups mm-hmm. and actually put it into where we can get substances to people that they want, but they're controlled, i.e. like the way you get a bottle of vodka or a counter, uh, you know what's in the bottle. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the way they want to... Put so drugs you can just make community. big farm on that bigger. <clears throat> well, they're the ones that would stand to gain from it, wouldn't they? And do you honestly think for one minute that the illicit market's just going to go away when they legal because they've legalised drugs? The legalised the the the, the illegal market will get cheaper and less, mm-hmm. and there'll be there'll be more of it as well. Make more things more potent. And, and you stuff know like the that. nature of addiction. The nature of addiction is. Can I get enough of something that almost works? That's Vincent Felitti's quote, right? He was he hasn't even, as far as my knowledge is, experienced addiction. But probably the best way I can explain addiction is it's like trying to fill the bath without the plug in it. Mm. The bath never gets full. Mm-hmm. Now, if you put if you put a free run at drugs out into a traumatized culture, so my issue with it is. If you don't address the trauma and you just legalise drugs, and drugs being a symptom of deeper-seated troubles, everybody and their granny knows that drugs are just a symptom. That's why Gabor Matty's quote is, mm-hmm. it's not why the drugs, it's why the pain. Mm-hmm. So if you legalise drugs, for example, using Gabor Matty's mm-hmm. statement, if you legalise drugs and decrim them, right, and throw them into a culture that's full of pain, what do you think is going to happen? Right, you're swaying me already. So there's going to be easier access to them. So a young uh, wounded Sean at 14, 13, who is navigating a housing scheme, you think of the lengths you had to go to get a drug at that age? There were certain barriers where you had adults saying, no, you're no wee man, no, I know you're da, no, you're too wee, blah, 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 or outside the off-license trying to get somebody to go in for you. Mm-hmm. There'd be folk that would say no. And then what happens is it's more ready available than abnormal, which is abnormal and now becomes normal in the culture. And there's more drugs freely available to people when they haven't addressed the poverty 
or the wider social inequalities, the conditions of stress that people are living under, the overdose adverse childhood experiences, and have got easier access to substances. What do you think is going to happen? No, I'm, I'm agreeing with you here, but I'll, I'll play devil's advocate and just say, what about a recreational drug user that wants to take an ecky at a rave? They'll always be able to do that anyway. Right. So think about it. The recreational user, I've let, I've got pals that use drugs recreationally. Ah, um, same. And I've not got an issue with it at all. I've absolutely not got an issue with anybody that wants to take it. That's their choice. Mm-hmm. What I have got an issue with is, is that the people who are dying in our country are the recreational users. Mm-hmm. It's hardcore drug addicts that have been in services. Half of them have been in services. Half of the drug addicts that are dying have been in services for years. Aye. And they're already in the medical model. I know what you mean. Do you know what I'm you're saying? No, you're not going to get... You're not going to get... Your, guy, your, your guys that take Ekkies and that... I mean, you could probably do it... Like, it's Amsterdam, like, the way they do it. They've got a kind of system where you can go and get it checked and, and see what it, if, ah, it, if it's the right stuff. That should be available, but... I, I remember at school, Sean, looking back here in my life, I was like, when we used to go in the smokers and we'd experiment with a fagger, you were doing the park, having a wee bottle of wine at the weekend, mm-hmm. you'd all plan it at school, right? Aye. Now, I'd be obsessed all week about getting to that no, weekend. I, I mean, utterly obsessed. No, I know. And then the weekend would happen and people would experiment and they would arrive back in school on the Monday, some of them, and they would be able to just function in the school and do their work, do what they needed to do. And then they could go again next weekend, whereas me and a certain small percentages had took it into the Tuesday, had, were rolling joints in the school Aye. and uh, for uh, playtime. And I realised looking back now that these people were not, I used to think, why is it that I slammed it to the wall and ended up Aye. drinking alcoholically and ended up using drugs addictively? Why is it me and no them? And then I realised... The vulnerability of addiction comes in the person. It doesn't come in the drug. Aye. So if you decrim it, then uh, legalise it. Um, and Scotland's really no really... They aren't really punishing people anyway. Like, if you look at the way Scotland's been for the last wee while, no many people are getting the jail. The police catch you a bit for a couple of joints. They've got the discretion to say... And you go. The t- they'll throw it down a mm. stank... I mean, I remember my pal get caught with heroin 20 mm. years ago and they threw it down the stank. And then you hear the people getting caught with, a, caught with a bag and getting five years and all that. It's, 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 so, it's so inconsistent, isn't it? Totally. It's, it's, it's probably that inconsistency that's keeping people's... Uh, on their toes, trying to keep people on their toes. Now, how are you supposed to kind of navigate a system that's so inconsistent? Do you uh. know what I mean? Like, one minute you're getting this... So that'll probably take me on to my next question. It's treatment. It's the right treatment. It's back to what I was saying earlier on. Get a proper diagnosis. If you get a proper diagnosis, it will liberate you. It will no limit you. But if you're going to services and not getting the right diagnosis and the right treatment, you're always going to be limited. Aye. No, I agree with you totally. And it takes us on to the the next question. Um, Why do you think the war on drugs has failed then? What's your kind of take on that? Why do you think that's failed? Because you can't war on an inanimate object. That isn't a war on drugs, it's a war on poor, traumatised people. 
Aye. It's a war on people. No, you're right. You can't. You can't. Aye. How? How can you have a war on something that's not there? Like yeah, something exactly. that doesn't exist. Aye. You're warring on a symptom. Mm-hmm. That's why, um, like, the medical model's doomed to fail as well. Because if you're just throwing prescriptions at people, it's like a, it's, it's like a type of pallet of care in it. Aye. Whereas we'll just manage your symptoms for the rest of your life. Mm-hmm. Whereas if if you've got cancer or something and you want treatment for that, then you'll get laid out the best treatment for it. Aye. And if that means you need to get chemotherapy in order to get into remission, mm-hmm. then you'll take the chemotherapy. And that's the way it should... And you would never tell a person to stop taking their cancer drugs. Exactly. You wouldn't say... Avoid the chemotherapy and just go straight to remission. No. Do you know what I mean? Aye. And that's the thing about, it's because they understand the condition. They understand the diagnosis. Whereas there's that much debate on what is addiction. Aye. And what it's known. um, What's the best treatment. I said, and a lot of it again is, um, it's like misinformation and a lot of people that I, I see it quite a lot and I don't I try my hardest not to but I just see people that should, are not qualified to be doing and saying that they're, that they're saying the things they're saying and um, and a lot of the th- stuff in the third sector is the best stuff you'll see like it's, and then when you look at like and listen I, I, see the, the, the DP have been great with me in North Lanarkshire I can't say anything bad about them but Sometimes the way when they come together and their subcommittees and stuff like that, I, I just go, you're missing the point here. You're not talking about the stuff that we need to be talking about. We need to be talking about, but why are we talking about um, opiate overdoses in prison? There's, yeah. there's none in, there's none anywhere. Nobody yeah. buys heroin in jail and like you need yeah. to take an awful lot of somebody to overdose. It's... What is a what's a polydrug use? What's a what are you polydrug using? Way the opiate, yeah, that's killing you. But it's even the it's even that's the focus on the symptom. Aye. So you end up these symptom chasing interventions, just constantly focusing on symptoms, and then the services are all constantly focused on symptoms. They're only getting down to the causes and conditions of what drives the addiction in the first place. Aye. Now, if you're in a service for twenty five year, twenty year. And you're still on methadone, and you and in that twenty year you haven't been offered any other type of uh, recovery or healing modality. That service has done you a wrong turn. That's no success. They've done you wrong, mate. I know. And there's and actually that's what happens, but there's that's actually what um, or has happened. Hopefully, I, it's changing. No, I think I, th- I, I I I hesitate to say, but I I don't know. I don't know if I'm a wee bit sometimes doom and gloom at that James when it comes to stuff like that I just don't I've seen it in the jail too many times when they come in oh big ideas we're going to do this change this change that and the jails are worse than they've ever been in it like they're really violent they're polluted with drugs Um, like my pal gets slashed there for absolutely no reason the guy that was out his nut on Benazalam or whatever you want to call it because he said how he asked. He basically was asked, "What's your best lift at the gym?" And he went, "I don't know." He said, "But I done like 150 kilo years ago." No, you know what you lying to me for? 
He's been looking for He's been looking for us. He's been looking for us, right? Yeah. He says, uh, oh, mate, it doesn't matter then. So he's come in later on, but the boy was just at a sight word. Yeah. And he'd already attacked, so, so attacked somebody in the prison for that. It's mental health. Um, so he's come in, he's obviously said to my pal again, What's, uh, what did you like me for? What you think I'm a dafty? And it's played, this guy's obviously got a lot going on in his head and he's fucked, but he's went and slashed my pal. So that's my pal now slashed. And you're like, how the fuck did that come about? Like, because... Yeah, shame. And it's, it's this polluted drug system yeah. that's... The staff are scared of The staff yeah. are going like that. I mean, I've heard some of the staff going, oh, I would go back to the fucking 90s with a smack in it. I would, in a heartbeat. I would yeah. do, like, I would rather we're all taking smack and smoking joints. Yeah. So more unpredictable in these other substances. Oh, see, see, I don't know if you, if you, you might know, if you, I was certainly in when Spice was, start, just started coming out and, oh God, that is the most horrible drug I've ever seen. I've seen, I've never seen a, drug suck your life out of somebody as quick as that in my yeah. life heroin methadone all of them that does something to you and it, uh, I, I don't I, I don't think you fully come back for that well you might be able to you're more predictable on an opiate ah uh, you're more predictable on an opiate and I think um, you just want to chill out don't you and like like you're no uh, want to go uh, and fight and with these benzos and that everybody's it's like stuff like, you know, your cell James in jail. Fucking, mind fucking three years ago, you says I, I done that, and uh, like it's brought it brings up stuff that wouldn't wouldn't would, would, would never matter. But so obviously we're kind of kind of coming up to the end to the podcast. But I would like to hear obviously I know you co-wrote a book. Yeah. Uh, can you tell us a wee bit about that? So during the pandemic, um, a guy called Andy Braley, um asked to have a Zoom call with me and he posed the idea of would you be up for writing a chapter in a book to try and get prison officers to view prisoners in a different light and all and vice versa. And it appealed to me because I'm a big fan of relationship, i.e. understanding relationship and not just the word. Right. And and prison officers are human at the end of the day. Mm. Now, I've, and you've heard it no doubt as well, the constant narrative of the negative experiences that, um, and being in contact with the prison system, so everything's negative, negative, negative. And nobody really, now I could write a book on that myself, mm. and I've never really heard a podcast or, or a, read a book that was shining a light on this is what happens when it goes well. This is when a prison officer was really decent to me. Mm -hmm. And and this is how it influenced my journey of getting away from the mm -hmm. system or keep me alive while I was in it. Aye. So I wanted to write a chapter in the light, in a light that pointed to the importance of understanding relationship, i.e. Um, so that ultimately prison staff could see their role in rehabilitation, that they weren't just a turnkey there to turn the Aye. door, and that they could see their role in, for some example... Some try. No, some I know they do. I know there's some like, crackers in there. I've got... I've got um, I mean, there's some horrible bastards, but there's... Of course, but you find them anywhere. Aye, you're horrible bastard cons. They're everywhere. But there's, there's some really good um, 
really good uh, staff, especially when it comes to the recovery staff in prison. Yeah. So I, uh, there's, there's a, I remember, I tried to hang online that spoke about this police officer who went to a suicide, the guy had jumped, and I put it in the book, he jumped for the Golden Gate Bridge, and he says, it was, wasn't he unusual? Most suicides follow a predictable pattern. When I went to the individual's house, he said, I was expecting to find a note. He says, because they usually leave a note. He says, but what was unusual about this note was it said this. It said, I'm walking to the bridge. If anybody smiles at me, I stops to say hello, I will not jump. So obviously nobody smiled Same. at him. Nobody stopped to say hello. And he's obviously followed completed suicide. And I was thinking, how you open a prison cell door could determine whether that person hangs for a rope that night. So if you open the prison door, you don't know what's going on with that individual. Mm -hmm. And you says to him, you're looking brilliant this week. Or keep smiling, you're not belonging to you out here. Mm -hmm. Or just a good morning, it's good to see you, pal. Mm -hmm. what, what energy do you need to put into that? when you're right. opening a door. Mm -hmm. I mean, that could be enough for somebody to realise that it's worth hanging about here a wee bit longer. Know what I mean? Mm -hmm. There does need to be, because I think the staff in the prisons, that they just go along with what other staff members are doing. Yeah. Um, I mean, I remember when I was in Adiwell, we were at the kind of reception, and uh, I liked the reception staff, right? Uh -huh. They were all right. Um, yeah. But they got a phone call through, and it was to tell them basically, uh, I don't know, it was like obviously a guy coming off the bus, and it was a young boy. Yeah. And I don't know, he'd obviously kicked off or something. And uh, the next thing, they were all pumped up. Yeah. Fucking, oh. Uh -huh. And I'm like, I, I says, who the heck you man? I went, you are all fucking pumped up, ready to, ah, no, you, you, and I, I get why they're doing it right, obviously, because they're going into an abnormal situation, they're going into a, a fight or flight, they're going into, some of them will be no one to date, some of them will be mm. in the lobby, but they're going into that gang mentality, where they're going, we need to, we're going in here to protect each other, we're going to, and I get it, but yeah. then they need to get why prisoners do that then, do you know what I mean, and, and see, the, see if they to get that understanding, that's when the healing comes, people, see oh, we right. can understand people's points of views and people that's where the healing starts well if you recognize that so that represents a type of rupture so if they need to go in and get heavy-handed on people for whatever reason right so obviously people kick off and prison sentences are unpredictable so obviously staff are trained to a, a degree where they know how to intervene and they need to do it as a group to keep everybody safe right. but it's not necessarily about that it's about what do you do after it so if there is a rupture if to split people up then what's the conversations like? What's the interactions like with mm -hmm. these individuals after it? How do you engage the rest of the prison to de-escalate and doze down the stress again? Because what happens is there's a rupture and they go back to relate. There's your tea. You want mail. You're going to a visit. Right. Instead of acknowledging and naming it to tame mm -hmm. it, like this happened earlier on, it was probably dead stressful for you. Right. Um, I, I certainly don't want to be laying horns on people. Mm -hmm. um, I want to come to my job and be able to connect with and go on me's and um, I don't want to be mm -hmm. involved in any of that stuff. 
that would bring simple things like that, Sean, would bring humanity yeah. back into that type of setting. I don't know if you ever seen the thing, it was a, it was a guy for, I don't know if it was Liverpool or something, um, a kind of mixed race guy. Uh, I don't know, he'd done a lot of things, he'd done, he'd done a long time in prison, but he went around about all the big prisons and he went around about all the toughest prisons in the world. So he went to like Mexico, America, but, but the last one was Norway. Right. So he'd been used to getting half Russia and all that, right? And they was getting half in Russia, they were tying tying them up and fucking cable ties and all that. It was mental, yeah. right? But they were just showing them this is what happens in our country. So the last one, he gets half the bus, he says, and I'm kind of pumped. He says, you can't help it. You're just going into a prison. You feel that atmosphere and all that. He says, and you're getting pumped. He says, and the guy goes, hi, how you doing? Come on, come and have a seat. He says, and it just oh, immediately caused me to go, uh, like, kill that vibe that I had like that right I'm gonna to need to get ready for this yeah, kind yeah. of animosity. There's nothing to fight. No. Anyway he, <laughs> he, he says it killed it straight away. I was just like because oh. it's hard to be I'm not saying because you get guys that would do it, but it's hard to be bad to somebody that's been nice to you. Absolutely. Do you know what I mean? That Human is nature. Aye. Gandhi defeated the British Empire by non violence. Aye. So the British soldiers are like, we can't shoot them, they're not fighting back. What do we do? No. They had to retreat. Aye. That that's the power of non-violence. Aye. And that's when you look at the Scandinavian model about you've disarmed the ego because there's nothing to fight. Aye. And it's the same as when I was younger and we were gang fighting. We didn't fight anybody, it didn't fight back. Aye. What's the point? I know. Because there's nothing to fight, there's nothing to resist. Aye. And you take that away, then you disarm whatever the opposing force is. Aye. No, I totally agree. So my final question, mate, James, I know you're at uni now, um, and I hope you're doing well, because I know you're, I know you'll fly through it, but um, what, what do you think of their curriculum? What do you think of the, the curriculum at the universities? Uh, well, the particular uh, body of work that I'm involved in, and it's brilliant, mate. Um, Obviously, I've had a special interest in a lot of what I'm studying now anyway, so I know a lot of the research and I know a lot of the stuff they're speaking to, but the stuff I've learned has been unbelievable. Uh, the tutors are brilliant as well. They know my background. They know, um, they know I'm kind of... I've not got the same starting point as everybody else in the class. Uh, but they haven't treated me any different, which Aye. I really, really respect. Uh, and I like the level of accountability, like you could be better at this, you should maybe try that. Mm -hmm. And just the learning, because ultimately my, I only want to learn so I can be more effective at helping other people, Sean, that's my whole no, department. I know. That. I know. Uh, anything I've learned is about how can I be more effective to serve the greater good? How does I use it to serve the greater mm -hmm. good? There isn't really anything selfish in it, mm -hmm. um, other than obviously I know I need to have it because of the. We live in a culture where um, qualifications is a thing that puts you at a different level of numeration, mm -hmm. for example, in an organisation. But to be able to weave all the theories and all that learning through my own lived experience, validates a lot of my lived experience as well. Aye. And it's also opened me up to 
be able to critique parts of my in what what I do anyway, but Aye. but just at a different level, do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And and obviously, um, if I'm more effective at helping people, then the people that benefit that are the young people and the adults as well that I want to navigate away from the justice system, because that's ultimately what I see. Um, my role is mm -hmm. is if people are going to go, they're going to go anyway. But right. it's that thing where how do we prevent them going and how do we navigate people away from it? Mm. Because ultimately, if you're supporting people to make better decisions in their life, heal their trauma, um, become a productive, contributing member of society, what that looks like, if you can get people into a service mindset and recognising that, mm -hmm. uh, now, I'm a big fan of what mentoring, for example. So if you get somebody with a background in navigating the justice system into a process where they're helping a wee guy that could be them to stop them going maybe down that road then it keeps the two of them on the straight and narrow Aye. know what I'm talking about Aye. the wee guy maybe no Aye. go down that route he might go down the route but that sense of responsibility you've got Aye. stops you because you're now holding yourself to a higher, higher account you know what I mean mm -hmm. but uh Ultimately, it's about prevention, mate. It's about preventing victims. Because if you get it right for this guy, then he's not going to be stealing out shops. He's maybe addressed his addiction. If you get it for this guy, he might recognise why he's got a propensity for violence and that will prevent mm -hmm. mere victims of violence because violence is um, it's contagious, mate. It spreads like a disease. And I know if, you've spoke... I'll just obviously finish off of this, James, because I've kind of... I thought it was... Uh, uh, a great idea that you you said about um your kind of a version of kind of like aye. like um, violence aye aye so it's still in its infancy um but hopefully um I finished the body of work that I'm involved in so I'm working with the founder in that particular program and hopefully um next year January February can actually set up and start the first recovery group for violence. Brilliant. All its forms, all forms of violence, um, where people can aim into and service, services can say to people, you should maybe go here, these guys might be able to mm -hmm. um, help you. Because I don't think um, there's anybody better at holding each other accountable than peer to peer. It's like, it's like even the same in the police. I was talking to one of my colleagues who's a, a cop and he was saying I was saying to him even Polish take the peer challenge like another cop will say it and I'll go what are you doing mate they'll no. take it mere on the chin and learn for it than they would if it was uh, some con no. they were some convict they were no, dragging through no. the charge desk and they were pulling them up for their behaviour they would just dismiss it and that's why uh, people like yourself and obviously my, my own experience is we can navigate people through the minefield and help them avoid the mines that they don't need to step on. And we're brilliant at holding people accountable for when they do step on the mines because it's that you could have avoided getting yourself blew up there, mate, if you'd have done A, B, C, D. Um, right. Learn for it, innit? Get a wee map into it, a wee map to kind of at least give them a chance of kind of No, I think it's a great idea. And Shad Maruna says it. Shad Maruna is a criminologist. You, who you're probably aware of, he said, the best people to get people through the minefield are the people who have already been through. 
because mm-hmm. you know the manger. Uh, that's no ad verbatim, that quote. I'm just paraphrasing him, mm-hmm. but I get it. I know what ah, he means because cool. I've I've been through that minefield, and the person that took me through the minefield was a guy that had been through it himself. Mm-hmm. And I knew him, and he took my horn. He was walking me through that minefield. Mm-hmm. I knew he wasn't going to step me. I knew he wasn't wasn't going to point my life down the way. Everything about him was about I'm going to help you to point your life up the way. Aye. And that's what we can do for each other. Mm-hmm. No, brilliant. And uh, I just want to thank you for coming on, James. It's been a pleasure. And um, obviously, it's been excellent to have you on. Thanks, Sean. Oh, you're welcome, mate. Any time. Neighbourhood, mate. Good man. Thanks.